Welcome back to Seven Skills for the Future podcast. My name is Emma Sue Prince. I'm author of Seven Skills for the Future, published by Pearson Business, available in all major bookstores and on Amazon. And this podcast is all about putting you back in the driving seat of your own life, helping you to develop the skills of adaptability, empathy, critical thinking, integrity, being optimistic, being proactive and being resilient. And I'm delighted to welcome to the studio today Esri Karlebach. He is a consultant, a writer and lecturer working in education and training and arts and culture policy. Welcome to the show, Esri. Thank you, Emma Sue. It's a pleasure to be here. I first met Esri at an editorial intelligence breakfast networking event uh, recently, actually, and um, the facilitator of the event, Julie Hobsbawm, was asking us what we would like to talk about. It was January and a new year, and what would we like to focus on? And I remember Esri saying very clearly behind me, I want to talk about the future. And I thought, now this is somebody I need to interview for the podcast. So Esri, let's talk about the future. Okay, well, um, the reason why I said that, and the thing that has fascinated me about the future recently is the discovery that it is that the, the way we think and talk about the future is historically and culturally specific. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the future, as we know it, was invented in the 19th century by a Frenchman. Mm. And that Frenchman was Jules Verne, um, a writer who obviously combined a knowledge of, of the current science and technology of his day mm-hmm. with a fabulous skill as a storyteller. Um, and the stories that he told launched a whole new way of thinking about the future. Up until that point, in our sort of broadly speaking Western industrial societies, the future was not a major subject of conversation or discussion in the same way. Um, and indeed, to this day, in other cultures, there are very different perceptions of the future mm-hmm. than we have mm-hmm. among some of the indigenous natives of North America, the US, and Canada. The future is seen as behind you, not in front of you, because you can't see it. Right. In front of you is the past with your ancestors and the things that are known. The future, you can only occasionally glimpse over Mm. your shoulder. Mm. Um, So it is the way we think and talk about it now is is very specific to our time and to our Mm. culture. Mm. Um, And there's a whole series of milestones in the development of that thinking about the future. And one of the most important and also one of the most frightening was obviously the use of atomic weapons at the mm-hmm. end of World War II. Mm-hmm. It's something that we all know about, that we have you know, learned about in, in history and so on, um, but I think we are currently experiencing the after-effects of that episode mm-hmm. in a way that we don't realise. It ch- completely changed the strategic environment, if you like. Once it became widely known that we had weapons that could destroy the entire world that changed everything Mm -hmm. and of course it was bound up in in the rapidly advancing technology in many areas but because there was a specific story to the way that the atom bomb was developed and then used and there are very big political questions about whether it actually should have been used but Mm -hmm. anyway Mm -hmm. um, it really did change things so as one example of how it changed things 
immediately after the end of the Second World War, in the shadow, if you like, of the mushroom cloud, mm -hmm. we got the first think tanks. Think tanks were developed as a means for the um, primarily American military to access civilian expertise in a whole range of areas. And now, of course, um, think tanks are a whole industry, and, yes. and there are many, many of them. Yes. And they have, again, influenced this view of the future as being mm -hmm. something that we can somehow know. Mm -hmm. or that we can know more about now than we mm. used to in the mm. past. Mm. Um, and that, I think, is, is fascinating. Mm. And do you think that people are afraid of the future at the moment, or are they embracing the future? I think it's a bit of both. Um, if you look at popular culture, books, novels, movies tend to be about catastrophe. Mm. They tend to be, there's a lot of dystopian, particularly science fiction, Mm. But other other genres as well that that deal with the future as primarily a catastrophe waiting to happen you know and it's whether yeah. it's zombies or <laughs> nuclear yeah. war or alien invasion or whatever these 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 dominate um, the popular imagination about the future um, but it doesn't have to be uh, clearly and there are other ways of of thinking about the future mm. including deliberately developing specific skills with which to try and understand the future and there is a whole tradition as well um, going back to again to the really to the 1960s of developing so-called foresight yes. futuring scenario planning all those yeah. kinds of methodologies yeah. really developed from the sort of late 50s mm. onwards now i know you've read the book thank you um and we'll come to that in a moment but what would you say are some of the skills that we mm. should be thinking about and developing? I think there are three in particular that I picked out from the seven in the book. And the first one is critical thinking. It comes up a lot in the discussions that I hear and that I'm involved in around education and training policy. Everybody wants their students or their learners mm. to have this ability to think critically. Mm. At the same time, there are many situations where people do not want their institutional myths and, and political ideologies questioned. Mm. So I think the idea that, um, that we should develop critical thinking has to be applied to the reasons why we're developing it in the first place. So as I'm suggesting with concepts of the future, mm. we have to think critically about whether the future exists in the way that we talk about it now, and if not, mm. you know, what are the alternatives? And one of the big things, just as a, a quick point, is there are social futures as well as technological futures mm -hmm. and perhaps the recent Extinction Rebellion demonstrations <laughs> have shown that we would do well to think more about social futures and perhaps not worry so much about technological futures but that's an aside really. But it, again in terms of skills we have to think critically about what they are, how mm. people go about acquiring them and, and importantly how they make their skills visible mm -hmm. to potential employers and, and in other situations as well. And I, I think as you make clear in the book, it's not only about employment and employability. Mm. There are many personal and social situations in which all, all the seven skills are invaluable. And I think making that more explicit is, mm. is important too. But that would be the first one for me, um, critical thinking and not taking things at face value, yeah. including the dominant story about skills in the future. Right, yes, yes, I see. Um, and you were talking earlier about technology. Uh, to what extent do you think our obsession and, and, and our, you know, 
with how we live and everything that we do with technology, to what extent does that impact on our ability to think critically? Does it? It does, um, yes. And there's growing concern, obviously, specifically about the type of devices that we use, the smartphones, the tablets, mm. and, and, and the, um, the applications or apps that, that are delivered to us, the way they're designed, they're mm. made to be addictive, um, they're made to make us want to give up information about ourselves because that is the currency of, of the digital economy. So that there are very big questions. I think it's a very old problem and technological determinism, as it's called, this idea that, that our technology, uh, there's a, a lovely quote, we shape our tools and then they shape us. Mm. The, the technology that we create drives who we are and what we do to a great extent. And yes, there's certainly some evidence of that, and it goes all the way back to the Romans building straight roads and therefore mm. marching armies on them and the consequences mm. of that, mm. through to you know, the, the virtual world of, of 21st century digital media. Mm. Um, but I think that human beings have in the past existed without all that stuff, and it is possible perhaps to conceive of a future with less technology. Mm. Mm. What would that look like? Yes. Yeah, we don't think about that much, do we? No. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, critical thinking. Uh, what What else from those seven skills? Um, well, I mean, they're all important. Obviously, they are all important. <laughs> um, and one that's that's very personally important for me is resilience. And there's a particular meaning in resilience that that always comes to mind when I think about it, and that dates back to a a very serious illness that I had some years ago, um, which left me in hospital constantly being poked and prodded by very well-meaning and, and lovely nurses and doctors, um, but with, with interventions that were painful. Mm-hmm. Um, and during one of my quiet moments, I discovered, I think it was on the Kindle, a book called Mindfulness-Based Cancer Recovery, and I thought, wonderful, I'll, I'll have a look at that. And in it, there was a single sentence that transformed my experience of being ill. And that sentence was, pain is inevitable, but suffering is a choice. Um, And immediately after this sort of, as the Japanese would say, this moment of sartori, this enlightenment moment, my whole attitude to the treatment changed. And the nurses noticed immediately and said things to me like, oh, you're being brave today. And I said, no, I'm not being brave. I'm choosing to experience the pain without catastrophizing, without going into this, you know, turning it into suffering. Mm-hmm. Now, that was um, my personal experience, and I know that it isn't always possible, and other people you know, will have different experiences, but it does, to me, illustrate what's at the heart of resilience. Mm-hmm. It's being able to separate what is painful from what is suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, and to, to pain is pain, we all experience it. Mm-hmm. Suffering, we can do more to, to mitigate. Mm-hmm. And that was simply by reading that sentence yes it was um and i mean i at that point i hadn't done any mindfulness practice i can't claim (laughs) that that i I achieved it in that way it was an intellectual Mm. if you like Mm. an um, understanding it was a moment of of insight which demonstrates the value of of learning and and reading and encountering ideas they can be that powerful Mm. how would somebody who isn't experiencing a kind of life-changing situation like you were, how could they take on that sentence? 
How could they use that? Yeah, a good example, which I still have to tell myself every single day as a freelancer, obviously, I'm um, at at the behest of of clients a lot of the time. Um, And that situation when you have sent what you think is a brilliant email (laughs) and nothing comes back. And you start thinking, what have I done? I've said something terrible. They're never going to talk to me again. And the pain, if you like, in that situation is having to wait for the response. The suffering is imagining all these Mm. consequences that are probably completely unfounded. Um, The person might be busy. They might have themselves had a cold and gone off sick. You just don't know. So it's applying that kind of thinking, saying, what... What is the pain? The pain in that situation is that I would like to hear back right now, but yes. I have to wait, so that patience is painful. Yeah. The suffering is then imagining yes. all these additional reasons for it. Yeah, because that's also a very strong link with optimism mm. and positive psychology. So being able to, yeah. if you like, rationalise the situation rather than ca- catastrophize it, yes. which is easy to do. Exactly. It's an emotional response. Yes. Yeah. And it's interesting that one of the leading proponents of mindfulness is a man called John Mm Kabat-Zinn and one of his best known books is called Full Catastrophe Living. (laughs) It's all about the tendency that many of us have to turn everything into a catastrophe Um, and uh, his advice is is to, instead of trying to switch that off, because it's very difficult, Mm. is to really go into it and try and understand it. Yes, so it's a bit like when, when we say to ourselves, if we miss our train, yes. that's a disaster. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and to sit with that, perhaps. And, and the third one? You said there were three, I think. Indeed. The third one is integrity. Um, it's so important. It isn't sufficiently explained and taught and, and certainly isn't sufficiently practised in, in certain circles. Um, but for me, it's absolutely central to a bigger concept that I deal with again a lot in, in the work that I've been doing recently, which is governance. Mm-hmm. Governance is all about how decisions are made and how the people who make those decisions are accountable for them. And it sounds obvious, but the more transparent the decision-making process and the more evidence-based, the better. Mm-hmm. So the governance of institutions particularly, but of whole societies as well, is best done in a transparent and accountable mm-hmm. fashion. Mm-hmm. But those things are only a function of people, what people do and say. And if each person involved in that process acts on the basis of strong personal integrity, mm-hmm. you are going to get better outcomes. Mm-hmm. And you can see it in everything from um, failing businesses to you know, repressive governments. Mm-hmm. It is about the integrity of individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens when a group of people act in a way to diminish or, or to deny integrity mm. is very bad. You mm. get corruption, you get mm. abuses and so on. Mm. And where you get the opposite, where people are empowered to act with integrity and encouraged to, and helped actually to understand what integrity entails, mm. which for me includes putting ethics, you know, philosophical thinking about ethics back on on the curriculum as widely as possible Mm. um, then you get better outcomes so integrity is is super important. So you're talking about individual integrity Mm. and and then decisions that are made by groups Mm. how, so so when groups work together it's often quite different I think, Yes. um, because you can get this kind of group think so how, how does one encourage integrity at the group level, so somebody may have a an understanding of how it relates to them mm-hmm. individually, 
but how how do we get them how do we get to that group integrity two things i think come to mind immediately one is by explicitly stating in all those group situations that there are what we would call emergent consequences emergent properties so with human beings one plus one does not equal two it's exponential the, the outcomes that become possible and that become realized sort of goes back to our thinking about the future and mm. different scenarios mm. but groups enact outcomes in a different way than individuals can which is good obviously because so many wonderful things happen as a result think of I don't know watching a football match mm. you've got 11 yes. against 11 or <laughs> whatever team sport you're interested in that's no two um, encounters are the same because the emergent properties are always different mm-hmm. um, and the second thing really is to encourage people to think about their language and about the metaphors that they use, right. um, particularly in describing other people. There's a, a wonderful book by a speechwriter called Simon Lancaster called You Are Not Human. Mm-hmm. Uh, the point he's making as, is that a lot of our metaphors, whether intentionally or not, rob other people of their humanity. That is deliberately used in the worst uh, scenarios when it comes to genocide and, and mm. terrible crimes mm. against humanity. Mm. But it happens on a day-to-day basis as well. We chip away at other people's humanity, mm. not always realising it, by the use of metaphors. And, for example, when, when a news programme talks about migrants swarming across the Mediterranean, yeah. Yeah. we immediately are put into a frame where we're thinking about some sort of pest yes. or infestation yeah. and it is yeah. really deeply unknown. Yeah. Well language is very powerful isn't yeah. it so and and for me when I, when I hear you talk about that that links for, links to empathy mm. uh, because I think the way we refer to things or refer to people and and, and how we you know you're talking about chipping away at humanity um, our humanity that is taking us away from empathy yeah. when we do that as well yeah Empathy is, is hugely important. It's also very difficult. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's very difficult to explain effectively um, mm. and how, you know, if I were to say to you, I feel empathy for you, mm. how would I actually demonstrate mm. that? Mm. How would I make it visible? So I think it's, 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 a, it's a meta skill in a way that needs to be made manifest through other skills. Once you develop a, an empathy um, for other people, you have to use some of the other skills, actually, yes. the seven skills, in order to make that empathy meaningful, make it a reality. Yeah. You can say, oh, I feel empathy for yes. migrants crossing the Mediterranean, but nothing changes. Yeah, it doesn't you know? mean anything. Um, yeah. And actually, I think yeah. one of the most important corollaries to empathy is solidarity. I feel empathy for another human being, that's fine. Mm. But if I'm not prepared to reach mm. out my hand and help mm. them, Mm. you know to show that solidarity mm. then it, it, it remains theoretical. I know you've got a strong background in um, education so I'd love to hear your views on some of the things I write about in the book because I do talk about we, we uh, I feel like we over educate here in the west and um, there's a strong emphasis on degrees and so on but I'd love to hear your perspective because I, I think you've got a slightly different take on it, which would be interesting for our for our listeners and for me as well to learn. Okay. Um, well, my view is I, I agree with you actually that we over-educate, but we don't learn enough. Um, it's education in certainly most of the advanced Western societies is so inextricably linked with a factory process that mm. dates back to 
you know, the first industrial revolution. It's just not fit for purpose. Mm -hmm. Where are we now? So-called fourth industrial revolution. Yeah. Um, and the, obviously the digital technology that, that is now commonplace has changed a lot. And so have our social structures. But our educational institutions have not kept up. Um, and there is a lot of... Uh, there are lots of reasons why that's the case, ranging from policy to, um, you know, the resources and, and, and other things as well. But where you talk about lifelong learning in the book, I think that is a much more powerful because it's much broader and more encompassing. It, it includes, as well as the formal learning that goes on in education institutions, it also includes informal learning, mm -hmm. for example sitting next to a colleague at work, picking up how to do X, Y, Z, and non-formal learning, which is not structured at all, may occur in the pub with friends or at home watching TV or yeah. in, really in, in any setting. Mm. So I think um, that as a society, we need to think less about formal education, although that's very challenging mm. for policymakers mm. to sign up to, mm. um, and think more about lifelong learning and what that actually entails. Interestingly, 2019 marks the centenary of the concept of lifelong learning entering into policy mm -hmm. circles. In 1919, in the aftermath of the First World War, the British government set up a commission on reconstruction. Mm -hmm. And in their final report, they argued that learning needs to happen not only more broadly, which means breaking down some of the class barriers at that point to, in terms of access to learning, but also more throughout people's lives. So this idea of lifelong learning emerged mm -hmm. then. Yes. And there's, so we've had a long time yeah, really to kind a, of think we, about we it. We think of it as something um, quite new, but actually it, it isn't it's not, new. Is it? it isn't new. And actually, this connects very directly with what I was saying earlier about the future. Mm. One of the most important books in thinking about the future in the last sort of 50 years has been Future Shock by Alvin Toffler. Mm -hmm. It was published in 1970, it sold gazillions, it was a, a worldwide bestseller. If you look at Future Shock now, particularly at what he wrote about education, mm -hmm. he's saying all the same things that we're saying now. <laughs> yeah. um, and very little has changed in policy terms. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, in many ways, we've gone in the wrong direction. Again, in the book you mention um, that we start formal education too young and carry it on too long. Yeah. And I absolutely agree. I think forcing five-year-olds yeah. to try and, particularly boys, um, who haven't got the fine motor skills to hold a pencil and write mm. neat letters is actually crazy. Mm. For example, in the Scandinavian countries, they don't start doing that kind of stuff till they're seven. Yes. Um, it isn't helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Children need to play. Mm. They learn through play. Play mm. is by far... A more powerful vehicle for teaching and learning than formal mm. skills at that age mm. and in fact still plays a very big part in adult learning yes. as well. Yes. Um, so yes I think that on the one hand I agree that we do too much education but on the other hand I would argue that some of the things regarded typically as old-fashioned in the education world are actually things we most need to concentrate on. I'll give you one quick example. Mm. Um, I recently heard a talk by the president of the National University of Singapore. He trains a lot of um, engineering graduates and mm -hmm. science graduates and so on. But he has introduced liberal arts courses which attracted, have been so successful in helping those engineering graduates 
to get into work and to succeed at work, that he is now providing liberal arts courses to engineering institutions oh. in China, yeah. where they produce hundreds of thousands of engineers every mm. year. And they've recognised that those engineers need to communicate, yes. they need to be creative, they need all of your yeah. seven skills for the future. And they can get that through liberal arts courses that focus on things like rhetoric yeah. uh, as a skill set that has been really neglected for many years. Mm. It offers people the tools to develop and articulate an argument and to understand when somebody else is making an argument that is potentially going to influence them. Yeah. And those things are vital. So I think we need less formal education, more lifelong learning, mm. and put liberal arts back at the centre mm. of lifelong learning. Ah, do you think we'll get that in the, in the UK, liberal arts being more well, prominent? Well, I think unfortunately what will happen, as is often the case, is that those with the economic means will access yeah. Yeah. that type of learning yeah. and will will do well with it. Mm. Um, and for most people it will remain out of reach, mm. and that is... Um, that is a tragedy. So, Esri, if our listeners would like to find out more about you and, and your work, where can they find you? They can find me on LinkedIn. Um, that's probably the best place. Yeah. Um, I'm also on Twitter, but a bit sort of a bit part time on Twitter. <laughs> I'm afraid. That's okay. Um, that's probably so a good thing. look me up on LinkedIn or, or search for my name. Um, Esri is not a very common name. Thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been great having you. Really enjoyed listening to, to your ideas and getting a, a, just a different take on these skills and a different, different way of thinking about them. So really appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome and thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. for listening to the seven skills for the future podcast there are all sorts of things you can do to boost each of the seven skills if you want more ideas you can buy the book seven skills for the future you can also go online to our website unamenta and join as a member and you'll be able to access more resources ideas and free downloads if you have a question you want to ask on these podcasts get in touch through instagram at seven skills for the future or on twitter and facebook at unimenta and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your podcast player of choice. Mm-hmm.